0: Let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 uh, through 7. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along in the bulletin or on the PowerPoint. And let's give our attentive hearing uh, to the reading of God's word. Revelation 5, verse 1 through 7. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll this passage for us this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship. Thank you for uh, calling us to confess who we are before you and to be reminded of who you are for us, our Savior, our Lord, the one who forgives and the one who who adopts, uh, the one who is gracious and and forgiving. And, And thank you for demonstrating that in placing your covenant sign on your covenant child. Uh, So that, Lord, your grace would come first. Uh, Your grace would precede faith. And that we know we're not saved because of our works, because of the strength of our believing. We're saved by your grace alone. And it's your grace that produces faith in us. And we pray, as we hear your word, that same effect uh, would would take place in our hearts. Uh, Your grace, your gracious words, producing faith. Uh, in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our uh, series in Revelation. We're hitting chapter 5 now, and chapter 5 is really a continuation, a continuation of the vision that started in chapter 4. So that's why verse 1 opens with, uh, Then I saw. Right. It's a continuing vision. And remember in chapter 4, uh, there was a doorway that was open to heaven to give us a glimpse of uh, what's there at the end. Uh, What does John see? Not uh, chubby angelic babies with dimples playing on harps. A throne. There's a king. There's a kingdom. There's one country unified by one king, ruled by him in perfect peace, justice, and harmony. And we looked at how this is so different from the, the, the secular outlook on the end of the world. The, the best cosmologists today, their theory is that at the end of the world, there will be either a big rip or a big crush or a heat death, heat death of the universe uh, that will bring everything to an end, everyone and everything to an end. In John's vision, we saw, right, there's not a big rip or a big crush, there's a big calm There's a king who controls all the chaos. All the destructive powers that were wreaking havoc on the earth now succumb to the throne. Uh, This creator God is reclaiming creation. This creation that's gone rogue. And nothing speaks to his commitment to do this than him sitting on the throne. And if this vision, if this biblical vision of... At the end of the world, there being this unified kingdom, unified under one king, and there is peace, and there is justice, and there is harmony. If that speaks to your heart more than the, the secular vision of everything ends and everyone dies, when uh, it, John Lennon, if, if his vision comes true, above us only sky, the sky will die, and everything along with it if the biblical vision rings truer in your heart, uh, that says something about how you were shaped or how you were made. You were shaped for eternity. You were shaped to last. Uh, So John's been receiving all these wonderful affirmations in chapter 4, right? So the anticipation for what comes next can only be greater, right? It's building up. And John is probably excited to see more. Okay, what is there in heaven to see? More of what will be revealed to him. But something comes before that in this uh, passage, in the first seven verses of chapter 5, uh, that, that is kind of unexpected. He sees a scroll. And this whole chapter is really a, a story surrounding, tr- surrounding the scroll. In fact, the, so are the next couple of chapters, chapters 6 and 8. It's, it's about the scroll being revealed. The scroll is a big deal. Why? What is the scroll? What is, why is it sealed? And, and why is John crying over it? Why shed tears over this scroll? And how is he comforted? Okay. These are the questions that we'll be uh, exploring through our passage today. And I've outlined it this way. Point number one, the meaning of the scroll Point number two, the meaning of the tears. And point number three, the meaningful comfort that comes after the tears. Okay, the meaning of the scroll, the meaning of the tears, and the meaningful comfort for those who shed tears. Point number one, meaning of the scroll. Okay, take a look at verses one and two again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break uh, its seals? Now remember, uh, the book, book of Revelation is filled with allusions to the Old Testament, and, and if you don't understand the Old Testament, you cannot understand Revelation. You have to interpret Revelation in light of the Old Testament allusions. It is a bad take on Revelation to take what's happening in modern day life, as some people do and put that as a template and interpret Revelation because that's not how the original recipients of this letter would have understood Revelation. Let's think what might happen in 2021 and interpret this book that way. The way that they would have interpreted this book is by looking back on the Old Testament allusions that are very clearly here. So we have to understand this text based on its context and that is the Old Testament allusions. What are they? Uh, If you look back on the writings of the prophets, like major prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, you see that these Old Testament prophets were given a certain right or authority to interpret visions and revelations that come from God. Visions that usually involve a temporary judgment on sin that when heeded would bring about a period of restoration. Like, that's what Daniel did with the king Nebuchadnezzar, right? Repent of your sinfulness, and God will restore a period of prosperity. And not only would the prophets of God have this unique knowledge about dreams and visions and revelations and able to interpret them, but as soon as they interpret them, they come true. There was no guesswork. Okay? There are no conjectures. Uh, none of this, hey, I, I could be wrong... But this is what I saw in my vision from God. Right? I could be wrong, right? Don't bank your life on it. But I, I got this from God, right? So there you go. I'm going to put that out on YouTube. Like, that's not how prophets operated. If it was truly a prophet of God, their interpretation would always come true. And that's really important to understand. It's, it's as if the, the prophets weren't just making known the meaning of the visions and revelations, but as soon as they make the meaning known, the visions come true because now it's been made known. Now it's been revealed. Uh, the making it known equaled making it real. Okay, that's what made the role of the prophets so significant. Their interpretation was so true, so valid. Once it's given, it's actualized. Okay. And the the ultimate point that will be proven is uh, the one who gives a revelation, God is the one who also brings it about, brings about what's been revealed. Now here's what's really interesting. Uh, Each of these major prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, you will see God showing them from time to time a scroll. The scroll contains a revelation from God, but strangely it's a revelation that these prophets themselves cannot interpret, cannot unlock. It's a prophecy they themselves couldn't interpret. And it would remain sealed even to them. And God would tell them this the seal on this scroll and the contents within are not for you to open, they will only be revealed at the end of the world. When someone worthy, truly worthy, comes to break the seal, open the scroll, and bring about final judgment and restoration of all things. That's the scroll we see in John's vision. In the same way, the mighty angel or the messenger in verse 2, as mighty as he is, is not able to open the scroll. He's calling out for someone who can. He's searching. Someone, anyone. But so far, the one who is able to break the seal and open the scroll is a no-show. no show now, would John have recognized this scroll to be the scroll given to the <clears throat> prophets Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah? Absolutely. Given his familiarity with Old Testament scripture, yes. And he would have been so excited to finally see this scroll, the scroll, opened. Because John would have known when this seal gets broken, the contents within the scroll reveal, then every wrong will finally be made right. Every form of suffering, strive, cease, and and we will sing like we sing in our carols. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as far as the curse is found. There's joy to the world. That the world gets saved. That's the meaning of the scroll. If this scroll gets unlocked, the world is saved. And the fate of the world hinges on that, whether the seal of this scroll will be broken. Because again, remember, if this gets revealed, it becomes true. That was the nature of God's revelation. If it's revealed, it comes true. So if this scroll gets unlocked, the contents within becomes true. Is there one who has that kind of authority, that kind of power to bring about this reality? To open up this revelation and make it real? Will such person show up? And the answer to that question at first makes John weep. It makes him cry and that's the second point uh, what's the meaning of his tears verse 3 and 4 says this and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and i began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it the greek word for weeping Clio also means to wail uh, to mourn uh, in this most painful, devastating uh, kind of way. It's this vocalized expression of utter um, hopelessness and your deepest despair. And that's John right now. And that's ironic. He, he's at the doorway to heaven, but his heart is at its lowest and darkest. Why? Is John just a really emotional guy? Just, he just cries a lot? Is, is that his deal? No. The reason is, is, as it says in verse 3, no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and that's an expression meaning he's looked absolutely everywhere, no one was worthy and able to open the scroll or look into it. Now, we just talked about the meaning of the scroll, so think about the meaning of no one opening it. Think about the the implications of that. The implications of this scroll forever being sealed. The world never being renewed. The world never getting saved. And above us, only sky, and we're headed to heat death of the universe. And everything and everyone will die. John is confronted for a moment with the very real sense of hopelessness and helplessness that would necessarily logically follow if there wasn't anyone worthy, able to open the scroll, make that reality of new creation come true. The very real despair anyone would feel and should feel if there really was no Savior, no Redeemer, no God. If in the end there was no continuity but only nothingness. And this is really helpful, I think, for, for us to just pause and consider, especially for those of us who are, who are Christians, because you know, we, think, we say things like this all the time. We say things like, I'm struggling with feeling a sense of, of need for God. I'm struggling to feel this hunger for him. Uh, I wish I was more desperate for God, because I'm not. Uh, especially when life seems good, uh, when I feel rather uh, content. What can be done about that? I think John's experience here is helpful. Why? Because it helps It helps us to feel for a moment what we ought to feel if God really was distant, if not absent. What if there was no God? Have we... Have you ever considered that? Think or or see with John for a moment what life would become, what we would become without the contents of this scroll, the renewal of creation and the renewal of us. What if at the end of the world, God was a no-show? Thomas Nagel, he's a Harvard-Oxford trained philosopher. He's currently a professor at NYU. He's probably the most renowned atheist thinker today. He wrote the book, What Does It All Mean? And in that book, he lays out in this most rational way what it really means to live in a godless universe, a universe where God is in no-show. He says, quote, Since the grave is life's only goal, That makes you want to cry already. (laughs) Since the grave is life's only goal, it is ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously as in that life is truly meaningful because that would be asking too much. Uh, You can say we all get to create our own meaning and try to live a meaningful life, but to want that self-made meaning to be truly meaningful, that's asking for something that this godless universe cannot give you. In other words, there really is no ultimate meaning. And he says... You can make up meaning that you believe in firmly and think it's meaningful because it will make a difference, whether it's helping the planet, promoting diversity, equality, justice, love, harmony, all that. But from a truly atheistic point of view, in the end, he says, the difference you make won't make a difference. Why? Death ends all. Whether you live like a Mother Teresa or you live like a Hitler, death ends all. He says, in fact, in the godless universe, strictly speaking, quote, it wouldn't even matter if you had never existed. <laughs> Is he saying that because he's, he's just a mean person? <laughs> no, he's, he's speaking as someone who's considering for a moment, logically, rationally, the reality of our eventual death and what he believes will be our annihilation he's getting to the heart of the problem if there's no savior no redeemer no God everything everyone dies everything gets forgotten everything's ultimately meaningless and even what we may think is meaningful whether that's happiness or love that's an illusion he says it's a charade if we came from nothing and to nothing we return Whatever you accomplish, whoever you love, death ends all. Everything will be forgotten. If we were to truly realize this as the necessary conclusion to the world, and if we were sincerely just pausing for a moment to consider that meaningless end to all that we are and all that we love and care for, might that cause us to shed a tear or two? I think so. I think so. Take Ernest Becker, another, he's a secular scientist who won the Pulitzer Prize uh, back in the 70s. In his book, uh, Denial of Death, he talks about how uh, secular humanists do deny their fear of death annihilation by the way they live in our modern Western materialistic culture, and, and, and that could be precisely why. Why we're so materialistic is because we're, we're so fearful of death and we don't want to think about that. He says, quote, the soberest conclusion that we could make about what has actually been taking place on the planet about three billion years is that it is being turned into a vast pit of fertilizer. But modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. As awareness calls for types of heroic dedication that his culture no longer provides for him, society contrives to help him forget. So, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. In other words, uh, we can drug ourselves, numb ourselves from this painful reality of our eventual mortality and annihilation and disappearance. Can't can't get the, the ending to Infinity War out of my mind. We all disappear into ashes. And we can busy ourselves with, with achievements and entertainment, but that's, he says that's drugging ourselves, numbing ourselves from this painful realization. The problem remains. No matter how busy we get with work or with play or with love, we face this predicament uh, of disappearing forever. That's another really sober look at the problem, isn't it? When you get to the end of the world, which is what John is catching a a glimpse of here, and you find that at the end of it all, God is a no-show. And there's meaninglessness, helplessness, non-existence. And the end game is not a resurrection where everyone comes back. The end game is an end to everything and everyone. If you were to sober up to that reality for even a minute and you were not numb to it, you're fully awakened to it, how should you feel? I think you would weep, you cry, you mourn. John the Apostle John is not being numb here. He's not distracted with any achievements or entertainment. He's fully awake, fully sober, and he comes to grips with the possibility of the scroll remaining sealed, no one to come to our rescue, to right every wrong, to continue our life, and everything ends. He's coming to grips with that. Have you? Have you come to grips with that? Have you wept for the world as you consider that there's a possibility this could amount to nothing? Have you wept for your loved ones as you consider they, as Becker says, they rot and disappear forever? I think the question is not, why is John so sad? The real question is, why aren't you? Why aren't you? How can you not be sad? Have you been rational about this? Have you followed your train of thought to to its logical conclusion? If you were to stand on top of a godless universe and look down and you find that you're looking at the universe's funeral, how can you not weep? Weeping in this case... I think it's the most rational response. It's more rational than the the cold philosophical way of just contemplating on this and teaching this at NYU or writing a Pulitzer winning book about it. I think the more rational response is weeping. It's weeping. And weeping also says, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be something... That continues. Life can't just be about our eventual disappearance and rotting and turning into fertilizers. That's also the meaning of John's tears. He's saying there must be more. And perhaps C.S. Lewis right was getting on uh, was was onto this when he, when he said, "If if you find in your heart a desire." which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the best explanation for that is that you were made for another world. If you find yourself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the best explanation for that is that you were made for another world. That's also the meaning of John's tears. This scroll remaining sealed, that can't be the end. There's got to be more. And then comes the, the comfort that, that's meaningful and only meaningful because, because John has been weeping and mourning. It's, it's, it's just as Jesus said, blessed are those who, who weep. They shall be comforted. That's what happens. That's the last point. Look again from verse 5 and, and see how John gets comforted. And one of the elders comes and says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he went, took the scroll, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. There is one who can open the scroll. Now, uh, maybe there's a question here that you might ask as you immediately, uh, as you hear this. Uh, If Jesus is the one on the throne, as we looked at in chapter 4, then who is this one coming to the throne to take the scroll from the throne? Because I thought that was Jesus too. And you'd be right. They're both pointing us to Jesus. Are there two Jesuses? No. Remember what recapitulation is, right back when we covered this in chapter one? In the apocalyptic genre, ancient apocalyptic genre, it's common to find these symbolic images that are layered or doubled, repeated, pointing to a single thing or a single identity. And, and that's a common literary device, recapitulation. It's not common for us, it's common for them, and we gotta read this according to their context, right? Not according to ours. This is a recapitulation, the one who sits on the throne and the one who can take the scroll from the throne points to one identity, it's Christ. Another example of recapitulation in this passage, lion and the lamb, the lion and the lamb. The lion representing power and authority, the lamb representing meekness and humility. Which one of these represent Jesus? Both, they both represent Jesus. They're recapitulations of his identity. He's both the lion and the lamb who was slain. He's also both the son of David from the tribe of Judah and also the one who carries the divine number seven in his very being. Remember, seven represents completion. It's a divine number of perfection. And that's what the seven horns, seven eyes, and the seven spirits represent and symbolize. He's all-powerful, seven horns, all-knowing, all-seeing, seven eyes, and all divine, the seven spirits. Jesus is both God and man, both the divine Son of God who sits on the throne and the, the Son of Man who came down from his throne and took on humanity in humbleness. The elder is reminding him through recapitulations, in Jesus you have someone who is Utterly transcendent and yet yet utterly close and imminent. Someone who is so heavenly and worthy and yet so fully present and awakened to your problems and my problems, to our helplessness and our hopelessness in, our, in the face of our death. He's above us, but he's also near us. He's on the throne, but he's also willing to step down from that throne to save us. He's a lion who roars, but he's also a lamb who was slain. And it says here that this lamb, he stands, he stands as though he's been slain. And that's another recapitulation if you think about it, isn't it? He's slain. He stands. Which is it? Is he dead or is he alive? He died and he rose again. And he lives forever and ever. Do You see that John, he sees that the one who is worthy and able to break the scroll is in front of him in this very moment. In a sense, the one who's already broken the seal and opened the scroll is before him in this very moment. The one who inaugurated God's kingdom made his people priests in his kingdom, he's alive. It's the lion and the lamb. The good news is, is not that the one, it's not only that the one worthy of opening the scroll will do it, the good news is he has done it. That's what verse 5 gets at. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, not will, has conquered the elder is comforting John with something that you and I have access to every day, and that is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that the Son of God became Son of Man, dwelt among us, and he conquered sin and death, overcame man's hopelessness and helplessness. He, he came to do the opposite of numbing himself to our pain, to the pain of this world, He took upon himself our cross. To die to death, we should have died. To ransom us and purchase us with the price of his own life. That doesn't say I'm here to be numb to your pain. I'm here to be present in your pain. So here's our doubling and recapitulation for ourselves. In view of our lives, in view of this world, in view of all the suffering and the pain... There is a place for weeping and mourning. That's us. That's thinking soberly and rationally. But when you do that, you have this very good reason to be comforted because of Christ, because of the one who draws near to those who are suffering and says, blessed are those who weep, for they shall be comforted. We're both the weeping and the comforted. That's our recapitulation. It's because we're sick, we're healed. It's because we're lost, we're found. If you understand the problem, you understand this solution. If you hear the bad news, you you understand what good news sounds like. And I think we'll stop saying this, or at least say it less. I I don't sense a need for God. I don't feel a hunger for him. Not when you understand your problem. Not, un, not unless you understand why you should weep. I think instead, as we, as we draw near to, to the reality of our predicament, we'll say, I am so hungry for him. I'll take even the, the crumbs that fall from the table. Just give me jesus like the song that says you can have all this world but give me jesus this is the this is the comfort we receive from the gospel and this is the comfort john receives at the end of the world finding jesus to be worthy to break the seal open the scroll and therefore realize what's in the scroll realize the renewal of god's creation and the renewal of god's people He's made it known, and therefore, he can make it true. The one who's worthy to reveal this is worthy to realize this. He's broken the seal. He's opened the scroll. That's the good news, and that's what the elder is comforting John with. And that's what you and I can be comforted with. The same gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this. If you've been so comforted, if you have received this, I would would encourage you to do one thing, just as an application. It's going to start sounding strange, but let me explain what I mean as soon as I say it. Start thinking just a little bit more often about your death, your mortality. I'm not talking about depressing thoughts about how you might die. I'm talking about the fact that you will die. The fact that you will depart. If, if you haven't done this at all, just consider just a bit more often, a bit more soberly about this fact. This is this, as we know it, doesn't last forever. And through that, tap into the freedom of holding onto everything a bit more loosely. Just a bit more loosely. And holding more tightly, more tightly to your confidence in Christ. That you will stand with Him. Psalm 90.12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's wisdom in considering your finitude, your mortality. What's the flip side of that? It is foolish to pretend you're going to live here forever. Consider just a bit more often your mortality. Hold on to the world just a bit more loosely so that you can hold more tightly to your Savior, your Christ. J. Todd Billings is a theologian uh, who authored the book, The End of the Christian Life, he's, a, he's himself a survivor of incurable cancer. And in that book, he writes, the goal for the Christian life is not eliminating the fear of death, but removing death from its throne. For as long as the fear of death rules, we cannot fully serve, worship, and bear witness to the true king, Jesus and he adds, ultimately, I don't think we can or should eliminate the fear of death in our discipleship. Just being the Christians now. Open the door, let it in. Stop letting it mess with your life by all the pounding outside the door of your heart. When the fear comes in, with Christ the King and Great Shepherd present, let the fear say its word. Yes, life is short and death is a threat, but in the presence of the Alpha and the Omega, the true fear is not the center of the room, and the room is spacious. Death is not the Lord. You don't have to banish it from the room. But let it relax a bit, and let it remind you, life is short. And then, give your short life over to the love of God and neighbor. Live with both wisdom, and an abandon, that we are not really in control. And strangely enough, that is, Good news. Let the fear of death enter the room. Just don't let it sit on the throne. King Jesus is on the throne. He's broken the seal. He's opened the scroll. He's going to make all things new, you and me, all those who put their faith in him. If you haven't done that already, give your life to him. If you're unsure that you've done this, give your life to him and as you weep for what sin has brought into your life and into your world be comforted for what Christ will bring into your new life and in new creation let's pray our heavenly father i ask that you would help us see what john saw help us to see the the weak and frail broken world that we do live in and the body that we carry help us to see these things for what they are but also help us to see therefore the good news for what it is The, the hope of new life the hope of new creation the hope of new heavens and the new earth the hope of love continuing the hope of peace enduring the hope of justice being done the hope of this seal being broken and opened by the one who is worthy Uh, let this hope reign in our hearts. uh, That is Christ in us, the hope of our glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.